so you help me out. Should a pastor be concerned when his deacons are trying to kill him? <laughs> From a deacon out there, no, just trust us. Now, I start my fifth year here on Wednesday, if I make it to Wednesday. And um, no, I, I, I appreciate are you Are you applauding because I might not make it to Wednesday? Is that what that was? <laughs> um, I, I know that because this time of the year reminds me of the move and all of that. And Brian starts his fourth year here on Wednesday, I think. We both kind of moved to the 1st of July. But um, not long after I moved here, one of our deacons, it got to be bird season. He said, you, you like to go bird hunting? Um, so I went bird hunting with him. And he said, now you be here. And I'm going to go over here. And before long, I heard him shoot. And then I felt stuff hit me. And... He really was shooting me from out there. Um, and then another deacon took me kayaking one time. Um, and um, here's how that story is. Um, never been kayaking before. I come from West Texas where you have to truck water in if you need it. And so the idea of being out on the water is a great experience and all that. But um, when you're bigger than the boat, it's not a good thing. And so... Um, so we're working our way down uh, the creek, and I, I did pretty well for the first, I don't know, six or eight strokes. And, um, <laughs> but as the day wore on, uh, we, got to, we, we were having to get out and go over trees and under some, and you know, sometimes we had to just totally get out of the water and pull our kayaks around and all. And, uh, so we get to this one point, and by this time in the day, I was tired and out of shape and all of that. And... So, this deacon friend of ours um, was standing next to this tree that had fallen because there was enough water for people to go over this, but kind of maybe needed a little nudge. And so he's standing there, and all the skinny people had gone already. <laughs> and then it's my turn, and so I back up as far as I can, and I'm just paddling, you know, to get as much as I could. And I had been kind of in and out of the water a little bit. You know, you get out and stand in it and move around, but... Um, at this point, I remember getting up to that log where the water was going over the top and my deacon friend was standing there. And as I just got through, I don't know if I hit something or if he just grabbed my kayak and turned it over. But at that point, I was all in the water. I mean, all in. Uh, so I don't know if he was trying to kill me or if it just worked out that way, but uh, whatever the case, that pushes me to our passage today, and uh, maybe some of that will make sense here as we get towards the end of it. We're in Matthew chapter 13, and this is another step for us in our summer series where we're looking at the parables of Jesus, and we recognize going into it that this is slanted because Jesus uses these parables to communicate kingdom truth. But Jesus knows human nature well enough and he deals with the crowds that he has and his disciples are part of those crowds. Uh, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he uses this as an opportunity to teach but also uh, to leave some people scratching their head going, what, what was that all about? And so in Matthew chapter 13, towards the middle or middle end of that chapter, which is full of parables, we come on these two little parables that we'll take together today. In verse 44, Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, 
and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. At this point, we see the mastery of Jesus in using these little stories. He reaches out into the lives of those first century Jewish listeners and he tickles the imagination. It may not seem so obvious to us at the beginning where he is doing that, but he he reaches out and he touches that part, not just of those first century listeners that were around him, but all the way through time. This seems to be a constant for many people. It is that part of them that wonders, what would it be like to be rich beyond imagination? What would it be like if I had all the money that I needed and even more than that so that I could be independently wealthy? In other words, it's as if Jesus tells these parables in which he says to them there are those circumstances, at least for these two guys, where the message of the day is, surprise, you're rich. I don't know how that grabs your attention. Maybe you're one of those live paycheck to paycheck kind of families. Maybe you're one of those who wonders where the next week's meals are going to come from. It's possible that we might even have some among us who don't have to worry about those things. There's plenty of food and beyond in the cupboards at home. But there still is that part of us, that treasure-seeking part of us, maybe it's human nature, maybe it's something beyond that, but there is that part of us that I think often wonders, what would it be like to be filthy, stinking rich? And it's into that part of us that Jesus reaches. He's a master storyteller. We we hear stories like these. I'll give you just a couple of examples. There was this guy in Scotland, his name is Derek McLennan. And most of us don't know his name because he's basically a retired nobody. He, he really doesn't have much claim to fame except that in his retirement, uh, he got himself one of these metal detectors and he began to make his way across the Scottish countryside just kind of, you know, looking for stuff, for buried treasure. And lo and behold, did he ever find buried treasure. He had his pastor with him one day. There you go. There's your first clue. Okay, He had his pastor with him one day and he finds this deal and so he begins to dig on it a little bit and up out of the ground he pulls some Viking treasure from the Scottish countryside. And over a period of time now he's gone and done these things and some of that stuff that comes from the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries uh, he's unearthing these things and it's making him to be a rich man. Can you imagine what it would be like to all of a sudden, while you're out doing something like that, to come across something and all of a sudden be rich? We think of those two people, the couple from California. They're anonymous because they didn't want any of us to know who they were because they were on their property out one day taking their dog for a walk. 
and noticed a piece of an old rusted can sticking up out of the ground, and they went over to investigate it was. They dug it up, and it became one of many cans like that that they found. And in those, they found 1,400 rare U.S. gold coins that had been minted in San Francisco in the mid-1800s. The face value of those gold and silver coins that they found buried in those jars or cans, the face value, $28,000. But they've been appraised to be worth well over $10 million. Not a bad return for taking your dog for a walk. You've got to admit, the, the, the chance, the off chance of finding something like that does tickle your imagination just a little, doesn't it? Sure it does. That's why the lottery is such a big business. Because people dream of striking it rich. Best story I know of those is about a guy named Roy Wetstein. Roy was just a guy, he had two sons. Together they liked to collect rocks. And he would go from, you know, on his business stuff, he would go from point A to point B. And if there was a rock show around, I didn't realize there were rock shows. I've been to rock concerts, but not rock shows. Um, And so he would find those rock shows and he would go to them. And so he was on a trip, or about to go on a trip, and his sons, each of his sons came to him and said, Dad, here's $5 of my money. If you find a good rock somewhere, buy it for me. So he launches out on his trip, loaded down with $10 from his boys. He goes to a rock show. He's making his way through the rock show. He comes to this one table, one booth, and this guy that is running it has a box there with a sign on it that says, any rock in the box, $15. And so he looks into it, and he sees a bunch of uh, agates, I guess is what, I'm not sure exactly how you're supposed to say that, A-G-A-T-E-S, agates, okay, I'm, I'm not a rock guy, um, I have thrown a few, but don't collect them or anything like that, and so he, he sees this box full of small agates, but he sees this potato-sized rock that's just ugly, and he says to the guy who's running the booth, $15 for any, bo- any rock in the box, and he said, that's correct, he said, I want this one, the potato-sized rock. And the guy running it said, you know what? Uh, That's the ugliest one in the whole box. I'll give it to you for 10 bucks. And so he did. He took, he gave his boys 10 bucks over. And he took that rock and he could hardly contain himself as he walked away. And after it was all said and done, he knew and was, it was verified what he thought he had bought for $10 became the largest star sapphire ever found. Now that may not mean anything to you. How about this? Uncut, that $10 rock was worth two and a half million dollars. Cut, polished, processed, $10 million. So I know that some of you, I can see it on your faces. You're going to start looking for rock shows. Doesn't it, tick, if we're really honest, doesn't it tickle your imagination just a little bit to be suddenly filthy rich? Jesus' listeners would have been sucked into this story. 
Because he uses two scenarios here that were very familiar for them. The first one is this guy who it says finds a treasure that's hidden in a field. That, that would not have surprised them. They lived in a day without banks and without safety deposit boxes or even without those home safes that some of us have. They lived in a time where if you had any kind of resource at all beyond the day or beyond the immediate future was kind of rare. And if you had that, you had to find ways to protect it. And one of the best ways to protect it, especially in times of war, remember that Israel was under the occupation of the Roman uh, Empire at this time. And so one of the best ways to protect what you had was to bury it in one of your pieces of property if you happen to have any. And so Jesus uses this story. He reaches into that part of us that seeks for and longs for that wealth that we talk about in this treasure. But he also uses this scenario in which they all could have related very much to it. Let me just say as an aside here, we often get caught up and tripped up by the ethics of this guy. Any of you get worried about this? How could this guy find this and then hide the fact that he found it and go do what he did. We shouldn't worry about that because, first of all, Jesus doesn't deal with that part of the parable here. That's an important statement. But even beyond that, Jesus is explaining what happened in their day. They didn't have any trouble with that scenario. That happened all the time. Even in the Roman Empire, the Roman government, they didn't have any way of dealing with that as far as um, uh, lawsuits or anything like that, if, if it's finders keepers. Like my brother used to tell me when he would take my stuff. Hey, man, possessions, nine-tenths of the law. So Jesus uses this real-life scenario that touches where they are in their dreams just a little bit. But he also uses this other example of this pearl, a pearl of great price to be exact. One of the things that we find written in the historical record of that time is that pearls were considered to be the most valuable objects in existence. Now, we think of gold and silver and that kind of stuff, and there's plenty of that to be had in the Roman Empire. But pearls were something different. It is said that Cleopatra had two pearls that were of such value that they were worth the daily wage of an individual, two and a half million times. So whatever you make in one day, multiply that by 2.5 million, and that's what that pearl was worth. Jesus is a master at finding ways to take kingdom truth and just lay it out in front of us that makes us want to jump at it. The question is more for us than it is for them. We know how they heard it. They heard it and they were drawn to it. The question is, how do we hear these stories today? It's an important question for us, and I I don't want to overdo it, but I think the time is right for us to kind of build a little here. How do we hear these stories about sudden wealth? Really... This whole series that I'm going to be preaching is tied to kingdom truth and Jesus' use of parables to communicate uh, kingdom truth. 
And, and I haven't really kind of camped out and talked about what the kingdom of God is or what Jesus means by the kingdom of God. Uh, and so before we get any further into this series, let me just do that here for just a few moments. Because we're going to hear this term, kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's used interchangeably as we work through this. What, what is Jesus talking about with that? One of the things that concerns me is I think this word kingdom has become kind of a code word for some of our Christians in this generation. Almost like a catchphrase, it's thrown out on a regular basis and we talk about kingdom stuff or uh, we, we shared the kingdom with them. And I, I, I have some people in my life that use that terminology on a regular basis and I've tried to listen carefully to understand what they mean by that. And I've come to the conclusion that they don't know what they mean by that most of the time. But it sounds good. I, I, I talked to this person and I, I set up shop in the public marketplace and we were doing kingdom work. Okay, so what does that mean exactly? Well, when we come to this, I think maybe the best way for us to approach it when we hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven is like uh, to remember how those first century listeners might have heard that. Don't forget that these Jewish people his disciples and those other bigger group of followers who were still listening to some of the stuff that he had to say, these Jewish people of the first century were living under the boot of the Roman Empire. And that kingdom, we call it the Roman Empire, historically speaking, but the picture is perfect for us because that's the empire, that's the kingdom they would have related to. They, as Jewish people, were living under the occupation of the Roman army. And the authority that came out of Rome and Caesar and all of the power that exuded from that empire uh, was being pressed down upon these Jewish people. That kingdom had impact on them. There were laws that came from the Caesar. Those laws were, some of them were oppressive. We all know those stories because of the way Jesus taught in other places that a Roman soldier could say to a Jewish citizen, hey, I'm going over here. You, whatever you're doing, you just drop it and you take my pack and you carry it for this mile. Jewish citizens didn't really have much of a choice about that. So they were living under this occupied force who had rules that pushed them into doing things that they may or may not have wanted to do. But it would be wrong if all we did is looked at the empire or the kingdom of Rome and its impression that it left on the people of Israel because there was great benefit that came with the authority and the power of Rome also. The Jews didn't have to worry about any other country coming in and trying to take them over. They had a certain amount of self-input uh, into the way they did their affairs as long as they didn't make Rome too mad. They had the tax system that was not really a benefit at all. It was oppressive on them, but there were still those parts that came, free trade, free travel, all of those kind of things all come with a kingdom. So if we hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God and all we think of is some physical place somewhere that's marked off by castle walls, then we're missing some of what he's talking about. The kingdom of God, he says, is like and those Jewish people would have tied in what he's saying with some of what they experienced from Rome. Here's why I think all of that's important. When we come to the kingdom of God, there are laws, there are rules, but there's more than that. Unless you've been living under a rock this week, you're very familiar 
with the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, I can say that, and the reality is multiple decisions have come out of the Supreme Court of the United States over the last week, but most of us are thinking about one, maybe two. How might someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven process what's happened in America this week? Let me tell you how I see on Facebook citizens of the kingdom of heaven operating. No, let me say it this way. There are rules in the kingdom of God. Laws, if you will. And I say that and many of us immediately jump to the Ten Commandments. I'm okay, I'll let you do that as far as the conversation goes here. But I think I want to take you to a different one. Two, to be exact. When Jesus was pressed about what is the greatest of all the commandments, in other words, in this kingdom of God, what should we pay most attention to? You remember what Jesus answered that? How Jesus answered that? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, okay? Now, we've talked about that a number of times, and I'll guarantee as long as I'm pastor, we're going to keep talking about that. Because if Jesus says it's most important, we better not forget that. And we better try to figure out how to get it right. And so his initial input into the laws of the kingdom of God are that we have to let God be first. You with me on that? Yes? Hello? Some of you said yes. Some of you going, oh, you're taking me down a road here. I know you are. Yes, I am. Because Jesus didn't leave it at that. He takes the next step and he says, and the second one is this. What is it? Love people like you. Now, this is the portion of the program today where you need to listen with both ears because I'm going to say some things wrong on purpose just to get you. So don't listen with one ear. You'll call me a heretic and you'll be half right. How did Jesus say it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. That's God first in all you do. Secondly, love your neighbor who looks like you, who believes like you, who acts like you, who does the things you do. Is that what he said? That is not what he said, okay? If you're listening out there in radio land, we're not on the radio, just so you know. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. But the love yourself is conditioned by love your God. You with me? So if you're looking for rules or laws in the kingdom of heaven... That's where you start. Love God, love people. You with me? Some of you going, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. Yes, it is. So I listen over the last 72 hours or so to the hate-filled reactions of Christian people to a decision by an unchristian group. Just for the record, if America ever was Christian, it ain't today. Bad English, but it's a good observation. How could we expect non-kingdom people to make kingdom decisions? It sounds right when we say it in church, but it sounds better on Facebook to go off on those people, whoever those people happen to be. And today just happens to be this particular issue. So we live in this 
kingdom, this, I think the way Aaron talked about it earlier today, the reign of God. But we don't get to come into that if it really is his kingdom and make up our own rules. Okay, now we're getting really, really personal with church groups now. So many Christians live below the poverty line in God's kingdom. And it's not an economic poverty line. It's a values poverty line. So let me, let me ask it this way. The way you're living the Christian life, the, the, the presentation of the kingdom of God as it is in your life, does it match the value that Jesus talks about in these two parables? We love the idea of getting rich. But if I understand what Jesus is saying here, if you have the kingdom, you already are rich. But here's the big turn, for me at least. When we reduce the kingdom of God to an ethical set of laws and then beat those into other people, whether they're Christian or not, we're violating the second law of the kingdom of God, which is to love people. We can't expect them to live under God's kingdom laws if they've rejected God in the first place. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't believe God's rejected them. That's probably a pretty large statement for some of us. If I understand our theology right, if I understand scripture right, Jesus died for everybody, including those who would reject him. Now, there's penalty for rejecting him. But it doesn't change the fact that he loved them on the front end of it enough to die for them and give them the choice. So the exceptional value thing for us, as we come to this, do you find value in the way you're living the kingdom life? Is it of surpassing value like we find Jesus talking about it here? So let me suggest this. I, I think maybe we should be careful how we communicate the kingdom of God and the truth of it. And, and really what I mean here by communicate is kind of like a communicable disease. All right? Healthcare professionals wear gloves and mask up and all that kind of stuff because you're nasty and they don't want to catch what you got. And so we're aware that things can be communicated. It's a communicable kind of thing. And and that really kind of is what we're to be about as kingdom people. We're to take the kingdom, the good news of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is more than just some nice, slick, polished presentation of the gospel. We're to take the kingdom into their lives so that they rub up against the life that Jesus says is so valuable here. Maybe the reason that a lot of them have rejected God is because we've given them a watered-down, dumbed-down picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And then when we have a situation like we've had this week, Christians go on the warpath and act as if God is dead and he can't run his own kingdom. I think that Jesus has more in mind 
than the kingdom that we might produce in the name of Jesus. I think the, G- the kingdom that Jesus is promoting here as valuable is a kingdom, well, I would just go back to John 10.10 10 again. The kingdom that Jesus says, I have come to give you life that will blow your mind. That's not a rule-driven life. Oh, sure, there are ethics involved. And the ethics of the kingdom would be better if the whole world ran on those ethics, but the whole world's not going to. And that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself told us they were going to reject it. But for us, let's not dumb down the kingdom to something manageable for us so there's just a bunch of rules. Let's figure out this valuable stuff that he's talking about and then live it out. All right, I knew I wouldn't get a whole lot of amens on most of that. So let me move on to the other part because that's the easy part of this. Because now we come to the slant. Remember as we started this, I said that Jesus embodies kingdom truth and he's going to be teaching kingdom truth through all of these parables. And and we come to this one and we see the value of the kingdom as part of what we've looked at so far. But, But Jesus tells it on the slant. And if you hadn't been here to listen to some of that, I really kind of recommend that you go back and listen online to to the first sermon because it explains the slant. But here's the basic point of it. Jesus knows human nature and most of us cannot handle the truth when it's shot straight at us and hits us right between the eyes. It's offensive and we, we turn away from it and we don't hear it. And so many of these parables, most of these parables, maybe all of these parables, Jesus tells it on the slant. It's that truth that kind of comes and it assaults us from the side. It, it's like the guy that you talk to and he insults you, but it sounds great. And so while you're talking to him, you go, yeah, okay, thanks. I'll see you later. You walk off, you get about eight steps away and you go, wait a minute, what did he just say? That's what slant is here. And so here's the slant as we come to this. Tucked away behind the flash of instant riches is the hook that catches all of us. Here's the hook. Jesus teaches us in these parables that the value that we're talking about that captures our attention costs us something. Notice the first guy. Well, actually, it costs us everything when you get right down to it. Look at the first guy. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells some of his stuff and he goes and he buys the field. Is that the way it reads? If your Bible reads the way I just said it, you need to throw that Bible away. It's a misprint, all right? Because he didn't go and sell some of what he had. The Bible says that he went and sold all of what he had. See why this is harder than the first part? (laughs) Notice. Well, let me go ahead and give you the second one. Same guy. I mean, a different guy. But the same basic situation, verse 46 now, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here's the risky proposition that would have jumped on these listeners in the first century. How could the guy be sure, either guy, be sure that the field or the, tra- the field that he was trying to buy or the pearl that he was trying to buy, how could he be sure that it wasn't going to get sold while he was selling his stuff, or worse, after he sold his stuff, to go back only to find that somebody else had already bought it. See, that's the part of this that's subtle. And it pushes Jesus' listeners, including us, to go, okay, so what is this? 
I can't get it. So I can't do this on my terms. I have to do it on God's terms. And God's terms are it costs me everything. See, we don't sell it that way. I hate to say sell it, but we kind of are in the selling business the way some kingdom people act. And we go to somebody and we try to help them come to know Jesus Christ and we leave it at the level of if you'll just accept him, believe in your heart. That's good scripture. I had a good conversation with one of our members a couple of weeks ago. He was doing some work in the parables. Careful. You're going to start doing work in the parables. Jesus got hooks in there. You got to be careful. And he calls me. He says, you know, this whole thing of our discussion about coming to know Christ and forgiveness and repent." Um, asking for forgiveness. And our whole conversation, when he was telling me, he said, you know, that we've, I'm going to put it in my words, not his, but we kind of leave off the repentance part of that. We just make it real easy for somebody to come in. You'd be part of the kingdom. But Jesus says it costs you something. No, Jesus says it costs you everything to be part of the kingdom. That fits, by the way, those other passages like Jesus when he called those disciples, those fishermen who were out in the boat, and he said to them, hey, come with me, I'll make you fishers of men, and we'll only do it on Tuesdays and Thursdays because that's what fits your fishing schedule. Is that what Jesus said to them? He said, come and I will make you fishers of men. And those guys got up and left the boat and started following him. And when they left their boats, they left their families, they left their professions, they left every shred of certainty they had in their life to go follow this teacher. And so later when Jesus would say to other guys, hey, come follow me, And their response was very 21st century Christian, which is, no, I can't come today because i got to bury my father. Now, whether the father was even dead or not is up for discussion. If he was, by all means, I would say, please bury your father. We don't want him going unburied. But Jesus didn't even give him that. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead. I'm calling you today, you come or you don't come. Does that sound like he got a vote in the matter? Very Well, he got a vote. <laughs> but it's all in. It's not just halfway. Jesus finally would nail it down for us when he would say, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. You know what that take up his cross means? It's a picture of an execution instrument. In other words, if you want to come after me, you die to yourself. All in. So with Jesus, coming into the kingdom is an all-in proposition. Unfortunately, we don't usually take it that way. I like the way one commentator said this, even though I don't like the way that he nails the truth. I like the way he nails the truth, but I don't like that he nails it about me. If he's nailing you, that's different. Here's what he says. The problem with most of us is that we would like a little of the kingdom as an add-on to the rest of our lives. That would be like this parable reading, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field and a guy went and found it and hid it in his own house and he held on to it and he brought it out whenever he wanted it. And he didn't tell anybody about it. Or he beat people over the head with it. 
I had a friend who told a story. It's, I'm sure he, heard, he read it somewhere, but told it like it was his own, so I'll give him credit. The picture is of Jesus as he comes into your life, and much of the way we sell or promote the kingdom of God is just some simple mental move. And so the picture would be of Jesus coming to your front door and you saying to him, hey, come on in. I want you in my life. And so you invite Jesus into your life and he begins to make his way through the different rooms of your house or the different pieces of your life. And so you walk him through and this is the living room. It's where I watch TV. And Jesus says, oh, you're going to let me be in charge here? He said, sure, come on in. Remodel if you want. That's good. You get it. He goes from there into the kitchen and from the kitchen into the bedroom. And, and every little piece of this move around the house, you pass this one hallway and you never even acknowledge that the hallway is there. And so finally when you've gone through the whole house and you've given Jesus free reign to do whatever he wants in all parts of the house, all parts of your life, Jesus finally says, what about this one closet here? Because we've walked past it four times and you didn't even acknowledge that it's there. What about that one? And our typical answer is, well, you can have everything else, but I'm keeping that closet. You are not welcome there. And that violates all in. Let's pray. So the question that I have for you is, are you all in with Jesus? Is there a piece of your life that you're holding on to that you're keeping back? Are you willing to let him be king? You see, the thing that I left out in that discussion about the rules and the ethics and all of that, the true value of the kingdom of God is that you have the opportunity to have a living, vibrant relationship with the king. It's not just doing the rules that are sent down from heaven. It's walking with Jesus himself. When you get all in at that level, then you find the value we've talked about. So however it is for you today, maybe you're just a a rule keeper. Maybe you fashion yourself as a rule breaker. I would just push you to this truth. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings says to you, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to do life with you. I want you to be part of my kingdom. And all you have to do is give up everything. Those are tough words. But those are his words. So Father, we ask you to do what you will in the hearts and lives of your people now. Give your spirit free reign to convict, to console, to draw is our prayer in Jesus' name.